Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Marketing is a key area for startups, and today we have an expert on the topic, Rajiv Sasena from Velocity Capital Advisors. We cover a lot of areas, including the challenges that startups face and the mistakes that they often make. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Brian. Thanks for inviting me. Our pleasure. It's good to speak to you again. As usual, we'd like to start by finding a bit more about you. So can you perhaps tell us a bit about your background and how you became an EIS fund manager? Well, actually, my career started in advertising and marketing from graduation. So during the glory days of advertising agencies and when TV ads were the thing as opposed to everything being digital. And then I sort of left marketing to then start running funds, specializing in Bollywood movies, all things. Mm-hmm. And then I went on to kind of doing renewable energy funding as well, and also sort of real estate assets in emerging markets. Then the sort of notion came to me with my co-founder, Bill Bungay, who actually stayed in advertising, which is where I met him. He was um, in my first job. And then the idea sort of came across that actually maybe the notion of marketing and VC, venture capital, bringing those two elements together and having marketing as a point of difference to help the investing companies hopefully succeed, resonate with their target audience. That's where the idea was born back in 2015. And actually, where it sort of hit home was that was actually something that Bill was already doing on a personal capacity. So Bill actually had his own agency called BMB, mm-hmm. and he would then help certain startup businesses by investing in them and also helping those businesses with, them, with their marketing. And actually, and, and it was proving to be quite successful. And Bill was really excited about one particular company that he had backed from a startup, he had named, he did all the marketing development for them, he invested in SEIS and EIS. And that company later, I think in 2016, actually floated on A at a valuation of over a billion pounds. So he obviously did very well out of that. And that company was called Purple Bricks, which you might be familiar with. Um, Yes, I think we have more than a passing acquaintance with that. Right. So I guess just armed with that knowledge, we we sort of thought, well, actually, we might have something here. And then we, we launched our first Velocity Fund in 2016. Mm-hmm. And, you know, made our first kind of seven and eight investments. Uh, and we raised the money principally through ourselves, putting our own cash in, as well as people that knew me previously. And I guess we're happy to be foolhardy, I guess, and invest with us as a startup, which is great. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's, it's, it's nice where people have the confidence in you to do that. So Velocity Self is now... I guess it's been around a few years as an EIS fund manager, So, but it does one or two other things as well. Yeah, so we've got an equity component, which is through EIS. We're also launching a family office fund, which is non-EIS driven, which we're closing out in Q1, which, if you will, would be potential follow-on funding for some of these businesses when they get to Series A and beyond. Uh-huh. So, so we've got that. And then the other key component we have, which we think is unique, across anyone actually, is that we also have a debt component. That debt is principally used for marketing, for digital marketing, going back to our kind of core point of difference, if you will. 
And that debt is provided to our digital companies on a non-recourse, non-dilutive basis. So the person providing the equity, they're getting a, you know, leverage on that money that they're putting in without any recourse or any dilution to themselves, which clearly, you know, if it works, will kind of help supercharge the, the capital return for the business and indeed supercharge those businesses in terms of user acquisition through the digital marketing platform that we have. So the debt fund is kind of backed by institutions. We've got EIS, which is clearly, you know, UK taxpayers. And then the follow-on equity fund will be family office-driven UK, Ireland, European um, institutions. Yes. And for full disclosure to listeners, I am actually working with Velocity on one of the debt products. But I thought what would be a good idea, as as the source of Velocity was really founded in marketing, would be to talk about marketing for EIS companies and some of the issues and the struggles and the challenges around that, because it's a key area for startups and one that many struggle with, I think. Is that fair? Actually, marketing is crucial for kind of two main things, really. So there's a group called CB Insights that year on year in the States, do research to kind of CEOs for, for companies that have actually not succeeded and failed. Uh-huh. And they inquired with the CEOs, what, what was your biggest reason for failure? Now, that clearly, there's always the classics about you know, lack of cash flow, you know, management team, that sort of stuff. But uh-huh. the biggest reason, significantly, year on year, the biggest reason is not understanding their market. Uh-huh. And so not understanding if there is actually a need, bizarrely, for the product or service that they're offering, and then crucially not understanding how to resonate with that given target audience, whether that's B2B or B2C. Uh-huh. So if you come at it, hopefully looking at what we call the usefulness of a given product, and really understanding you know, how to resonate that use to the target audience, then hopefully that gives you a slightly higher chance of succeeding. And as I said, that is the biggest reason that people highlight for failure. And, and the other point about marketing is that it also, particularly for digital companies, which is what we invest in, it ends up being your biggest expense. Again, there's a, there's a stat from a group called ClearBank, a Canadian US-based fund, where they've done some analysis, which actually says, which is quite astounding, 50% of all venture capital money in the world ends up with Facebook and Google. Mm-hmm. It's quite staggering. So basically, you've got the biggest reason for failure, and it's your biggest expense. And the reason why Facebook and Google are so big and so successful is because now you really can through digital marketing, absolutely identify Dr. Brian Moretta. We know that he likes to tango, so we can <laughs> offer him some Argentinian you know, music. And we can literally, Facebook will tell us how much it's going to cost to get you and be able to really singly tar- target you. And then through our analysis, we can work out, okay, once I've got Brian, what's the chances that he might actually purchase the product? And if indeed he does purchase the product, how much is that going to be worth to me? And these are, these are the data sets that you're familiar with, with the help that you're doing. So marketing, as I said, it's the biggest reason for failure and your biggest, biggest expense. If you get that right, our belief is that you have a slightly hard chance of succeeding. So when a new company or a new investment arrives in your fund, typically what sort of stage are they in the marketing development? Have they usually identify the market or have they started marketing where are they so can we invest in everything from you know piece of paper but that's very rare all the way up to businesses that you know are profitable and you know generating revenues in excess of five million plus and the marketing piece actually varies so you can have a startup business 
that's doing quite sophisticated marketing because that's something they're familiar with and they know how to kind of generate the, the data and you know, maximize their, their efficiencies. And you can have the company that's generating significant revenues and profitability that really is very poor on its marketing. Mm-hmm. So it, it just varies. What we do, we, we take the marketing strategies that the company has, we look at it from a creative point of view, and we also look at it from a data point of view, and we do what we call a marketing audit on those businesses. And then we determine what level of equity that company should need or requires and what level of debt or marketing we can provide it as well. So the, the marketing facility, we need to lead up to about 50,000 a month, but you know, mm-hmm. ultimately we can lend up to a million pounds a month if we, if we need to, as long as the data allows that to work for the given company, mm-hmm. i.e. it can pay back from revenues generated by the debt providers. So the equity then is just purely for, you know, can then be used for operational cash flow and all the other bits outside of the marketing perspective. Mm-hmm. And how does that vary? You mentioned you get companies all different sort of stages. Presumably a company that's found product market fit to some extent or a greater extent. What if a company is perhaps less developed and still trying to establish its market? How do you look at that? I mean, we try and take on, we take on, you know, through CIS, probably about five companies a year. Mm-hmm. And those will tend to be less developed and with a lot more room for capital appreciation, I guess, from a positive perspective. Mm-hmm. And with those particular companies, we do everything from actually renaming the business to sorting their, their marketing strategies out. So there, there was one company, for example, which we invested in SEIS originally. It came to us called The Dining Club. We thought that was a, you know, quite a mundane kind of name. It's about kind of chefs coming to your house and cooking for those customers. Mm-hmm. So you're getting restaurant-type food in the comfort of your own home. And we did a whole branding exercise on that business. We renamed it from Dining Club to Killer Chefs, which is, we figure, slightly more edgier. Mm-hmm. And we're now kind of starting the marketing process with them and in terms of the audit and getting that ready to hopefully be supercharged, you know, post-COVID later in the year, mm-hmm. later next year. Have they kind of found product market fit? Do they know exactly who their purchases are or how do they develop that? Most companies, you know, through their business plan will have done their own analysis on the market and we clearly feel that there is a market for this product. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we wouldn't have invested in it. And then ultimately, though, in the case of this business, which is a startup, it's all down to what happens next. How, how good is the product? How well is it received? What's the retention rates for those particular customers? And then moving on to seeing when and if it can then make profit. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, there has to be a leap of faith, right? Because I've never seen any business model or financial forecast 100% being hit by anyone. Yeah, the nature of entrepreneurship is to be optimistic. And that is normally reflected in the projections as well, sometimes almost to the point of being delusional. Yeah, but I think if it was delusional, though, then we'd have a real problem with that. Yeah. Because clearly that reflects on the management team, so which will reflect on our confidence and their ability to execute. So we would be very anti anything too over optimistic or delusional, or, for example, suggesting that they'll be profitable, you know, within the year, etc. So you mentioned that you, in the example you gave about going in and changing the name or whatever, that kind of suggests a very much more hands-on approach to this than perhaps some other managers do. How do you get the right balance between supporting and mentoring a company 
and going in and running it. That always seems a, t- a tricky balance to, to find. Well, we'd, ne- we'd never, never be in the business of running the business. That is definitely the job of the founders. And, and the level of help actually manifests itself in many different ways. It's, it's recruitment. We, we often put our own finance team into the, those underlying companies if, if that's required. It's obviously the marketing piece. Then it's really about helping them plan their milestones. We have a very much a milestone-driven approach. Uh-huh and we tend to drip feed investment. So what we don't like to do is kind of give a really high lump sum of cash and let the entrepreneur, if you will, rest on their laurels with that. So the idea is that we agree milestones. If those milestones are hit, then there's clearly a valuation uplift, which is good for the investors and good for the founders. And then we, we will drip feed more cash. So it's a question of just on a formal basis, we meet each of the underlying companies every six weeks and have formal review and update meetings. But most of it tends to be very um, kind of ad hoc as and when something is needed. And, and, and it's really interesting, actually. The, the companies that communicate with us the most tend to be the ones that are doing really well. And what happens when things aren't going so well is suddenly everything goes a bit silent. That always sends a radar to us to, to see what's going on. Mm-hmm. In some ways, it's a measure of how impressive or how good a founder is, is if when things are going wrong, they actually reach out rather than just sort of saying, uh. I agree. Totally agree. And things will go wrong. That's one thing you can say 100% is going to happen. So it's just how you deal with that. Yes, yes. We also mentioned earlier about you invest in B2B and B2C. Now... I've read a lot of the theory. I'm not an entrepreneur in practice, but my understanding is there's some very profound differences in marketing from these two. How do you approach each of those and, and, and what's the differences? So actually, to be honest, when we say B2B, they will have to be B2B with scale uh-huh. because we always look at things, as I say, if someone wants to come to us and where we can really add value is that component of the equity and debt piece. Uh-huh. So if it was a B2B business that just required marketing, let's say, to 10 pharmaceutical companies, that's not something that you shouldn't come to us for that. that that's uh-huh. another type of speciality. There'll be better VCs, for example, in medtech uh-huh. that that business should approach. So where we look at sort of B2B propositions is if there is scale of customers. So if, for example, we look at one particular business, which is t- targeting insurance products to freelancers, and that there are a lot of freelancers around. Mm-hmm. So that is something that we would consider and, and embrace. Because, so in essence, the differences aren't that great in terms of what we do. But clearly, it's a very different sales cycle in traditional B2B um, businesses, and often with very large cycles for those sales. So yeah, so you're kind of avoiding the crossing the chasm type things where you've got institutional type sales structures and things. It's, it's, it's something that's more consumery. Exactly. We have invested in some of those businesses, having said that. But I think just with the advent of juice, we really have refined where, you know, what our thinking and proposition is. So going forward, yeah, it will be more scalable B2B and B2C companies, digital companies. Mm -hmm. And when a company comes in, they have presumably, they found a market. Is it usually a case of they found the ideal market or are you still helping to find new markets or how does that? No, they they, they will come with the idea, but I guess where we can help is in scalability. Mm -hmm. Most tend to be UK based, not all. Once that market is hopefully reached, then in terms of scalability, particularly going east, actually, 
that's something we have been able to help those businesses do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, internationalization, I think, is a challenge for most of these companies. What sort of things can you do to actually help them? I mentioned before that we we had a fund in emerging markets. So we've actually got base, for example, in, in India, in Bombay. Uh-huh. So I've had a few companies that, you know, have an interest in taking the product that they've got to that market. So we've just got contacts and experience and, and we can help them. And, and uh-huh. it's not easy. My gosh, going east is, is a really tough nut to crack. But if you can do it, uh-huh. and do it right, then it's adding huge benefits to your uh-huh. multiples or your enterprise value. Yeah. Presumably when it comes to marketing, the cultural difference really matters and certainly I've spent a fair amount of time in the Far East and while I love the culture, it's very different. And I can imagine doing business or marketing there will require some modification of your approach. Is that fair? Yeah, I, th- I think that, yeah, absolutely. And I think that, that would apply even to, if you want to take your product to, to France or Germany. But I guess the one thing that is relatively consistent, if you take China aside, you still have this dominance of digital which you can still provide in any given international market because, you know, those things tend to be the same. Mm-hmm. It's still about data. It's still about user acquisition. It's still about lifetime value. Okay. Presumably, it's still about finding the right message as well in terms of what I think of marketing is about creating advertising or branding. And yeah. do you find the same things resonate in different places? Yeah, so again, what, what we do with the company, we work with some really brilliant agencies as well. We offer those, those services to, to those given companies, you know, at, at discounted rates where you're, you're absolutely right. It's not just about data. You've got to get your messaging right so, so that it resonates with that given audience. And the better the message, the more efficient the data will be. So mm-hmm. it's a combination of absolutely doing that. The branding and that side of things is something we, we really encourage that these companies do right from the get-go, they start with us. So we do what we call an M- a marketing MOT on the, mm-hmm. on the underlying businesses. And through that, it may come that the name needs to change or, or, or not. So it is really about getting your messaging right, as well as having the data-driven approach that you, you do. And do you see a willingness of companies to experiment with that? I mean, so the whole ethos within the digital era is an experimental one. And sometimes I wonder if companies fully embrace that. Yeah, but digital, you're absolutely right. It's, it's a great forum to actually experiment and continue to improve. And, and eventually, you know, you'll get to the perfect messaging messages. It's one of our criteria in terms of investing, of actually seeing how embraces and responsive the management team are to advice or to guidance. Clearly, if they, they are, and we've had this, if they tend to be quite prima donnaish, those are the companies that never work. 100%. So prima donna, you mean that they come in and we know it all, that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. What tends to happen is that the founders typically split up, which is the biggest reason why things go wrong. That's worse than a divorce. If you've anybody's <laughs> been through a divorce, you'll know that that's it's a pretty painful. And there's no going back after that. Those companies typically have had founders that are just very difficult to work with. And yeah, lessons learned. Yeah, so how, how do you look to avoid that going forwards? Effectively, if, if the founders do have issues with, with each other, there's kind of a Texas shoot-off. I think that's the word. So mm-hmm. um, basically, one person will have to buy up the other. So, so we have those built in to the investment agreements, which we didn't have originally, which was a mistake. We've had one scenario 
funny enough, where there was a husband and wife team and we insisted on having a divorce clause. <laughs> they didn't progress with us because they didn't want to do that, which is fair enough. But I mean, mm -hmm. we, we just have to protect the investor. And as I say, the biggest reason is founders falling out. And um, if that happens, the, the solution is that one of them, or one of the three or one of the four or two of the three or whatever, will we'll need to kind of buy the other one out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's something. But that it's never it's, ideal. It's, 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 a it's a horrible thing when that happens. No, you're not the only person running funds who has given examples of things where it's gone horribly wrong in that respect. And I've had conversations with several firm managers where they've talked about this company did this and we're spending a lot of time managing. And even if you work out, it, it's, it's a huge drain of time supporting them and, and helping them find the right solution. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the ideal, and it's hard, but ideally what you want to do is concentrate on the, on the ones that are really doing well, the ones that uh -huh. are really struggling. You, you want to you know, have a quick kill because that's where it's better for the investor that the, the fund managers are concentrating on, on the on businesses that are going to get them the highest returns. Uh -huh. And you're right, it is draining. That negative energy is, is never good. But it's hard emotionally to do that, right? Because you, you've obviously believed in these businesses and, and invested in them and you wouldn't have done so if you, you hadn't. Yeah. Presumably there's also an issue in terms of, as you say, every business goes through tough times and sometimes it can be difficult to say this is a tough time and, and they'll get through it and this is a tough time and it's going to kill the company. And it, presumably that's not clear a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. But actually, you sort of, to be honest, you, now we, we, you know, I think we've got enough experience to kind of, you, you just kind of know in your, in your water, if you will, mm -hmm. when things are just not going to happen. Okay. And I guess that, that's kind of experience and instinct as much as anything else. But, you know, the, the important thing is, as you said, you, you're just never going to get everything right all the time. And anyone mm -hmm. who says they will is not being um, genuine. And that's why I think, you know, having a portfolio approach is really important. Mm -hmm because that really does increase your chances of success. And, and whilst we have had investors that want to back a particular business, because let's say that it's a recruitment business and they know recruitment, we're not going to stop an investor from doing what he or she wants. But to ask us, definitely a portfolio approach is, is more prudent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Absolutely, yeah. So you touched on one issue in companies. What sort of mistakes do you see companies or several companies making that they could avoid or you might suggest to people? Yeah. Particularly some of the companies that are doing really well. Actually, one of the biggest mistakes is there's a moment in a company life cycle where it's time to go for it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you've got everything in place. You know who your customers are. Yeah. And, you know, you've just got to have the confidence to really scale up. It's that inflection point in the J-curve, which yeah. we dream of. And, and giving the, the founders, just encouraging them to now go for it is one of the biggest mistakes that, that you know, we see because they can be quite conservative. And they, I guess it's our job to say, well, now's the time that you can get from 5 million to, you know, let's say, 25 million of revenue. And to do this, this is what we need to do. So whilst you were spending, for example, £20,000 a month on marketing, we now need to think about getting up to about you know, 200000 etc. Mm -hmm. That inflection point and making sure the, the, the founders are there to, to go for it. Do you see people doing much in the way of premature scaling? Because I've heard stories about people who think, oh, we've made five sales, we know our market, let's go for it. Does that happen much? Uh, not with us, because I think we, we, we would control that. 
Yeah, with us, we would know when the right time is, I think, to really start supercharging. And that, as you know, is when, you know, we've got enough sufficient data and mm-hmm. sufficient margin to know that, that now, now is the time. Having a few amount of customers is not evidence enough for you to be supercharging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Presumably, that's one of the things where you might have a better idea than the management. And that management, particularly if they're first-time founders, will sort of say, how do we identify that inflection point? How do we know we've got enough customers? So I think, again, that's where we'll help them. You mm-hmm. know, we have, our, you know, as you know, we've got our own data scientists and mm-hmm. they will work with the, with the underlying companies. Because the last thing we want to do as well is to put the company in a position where suddenly embracing huge amount of debt that it's not able to pay. That's not in anyone's interest. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. There's reasons why people are very cautious about the use of debt in startup companies. So the circumstance where you're using it has to be very considered, I think. Yeah, but again, Brian, as you know, this is a massive marketplace. So ClearBank, which is the biggest player in this in the user acquisition space, is now doing 100 million a month. Yeah, it's just a super interesting area where Facebook and Google and the likes data works. Yeah. Do you think the domination of Facebook and Google simplifies things for companies or do you think it's a bad thing? I mean, it's, it's a very easy facility for, for companies to use, which works, but it's clearly a, a duopoly mm-hmm. of huge significance. All the cases that are going on at the moment about the monopolies and unfair advantage, those are mm-hmm. absolutely, absolutely self-evident. And just seeing how those companies have grown, you know, during COVID as well, it's quite extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, obviously, COVID has had a dramatic effect on this world. And people have talked about accelerations in some areas. And we've had a two stream economy. I mean, the areas you operate in, has everything been going well or better? There's been a few, for example, we've had a travel company that's clearly not mm-hmm. doing particularly well at the moment. And there's also a tattoo business which again had to kind of stall. But in general, digital businesses have done really, really well in this environment. And, and so what's really clear are all the businesses that clearly have suffered, cruises, travel, retail, airlines, all the obvious ones. But I guess what's slightly less well-known beyond delivery businesses and Amazon, that, that there are some quite resilient sectors. So streaming technologies, gaming is, is, has been a huge boom. People are more staying at home, meal kits, We've got about six or seven milk kit businesses, which are month on month doing record sales um, mm-hmm. since COVID. So yeah, digital companies on the whole are more resilient. And, and yes, I'm sure everyone's seen lots of evidence talking about this kind of step change during COVID. And yeah, I think it's, it's fair to say that some of those changes are 100% going to remain post-vaccine. I mean, retail is going to have a real hard time getting back to anywhere near where it was. Do you think that change is simply, I'm not going to the office, so I don't need to buy a suit? Or do you think it's people's buying habits have genuinely changed either in the the venue they're using or the sorts of stuff that they're going to be buying? Yeah, I think it's just the buying habits have changed. I mean, you know, look, you've seen, everyone's seen the demise of Topshop and Debenhams right now. And the notion of kind of piling high your stock and having, you know, incredibly expensive retail outlet to kind of sell your wares you know there are people that still want to do that but i Mm -hmm. think you know more and more people are kind of looking at you know digital online purchasing 
solutions. For example, that's really well evidenced, for example, when you look at kind of subscription businesses. So I don't know whether, how many subscriptions you've got, but certainly about four or five years ago, I think the average UK consumer, I think it was around 30, 40 pounds worth of subscription-based businesses that, that, that they were part of. Mm-hmm. That figure has more than trebled and quadrupled in the last few years. And that's only, we feel, going to grow. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whether it's your Netflix, you know, anything, there's so many different businesses that now are subscription-based. Yeah, I, I'm just wondering how deep that goes. I mean, obviously, we know X million houses have Netflix and they've got Amazon Prime and Disney Plus now, which has timed its launch to perfection in some ways. How far down the stack do you think that it goes in terms of you've, you've got various niches? So many different things. Everything from shaving kits to pet. There's another business we're investing in which provides kind of flea, flea treatments for pets. Mm-hmm. They're all subscription-based. And I think the consumer is gradually more familiar with that. And as much as possible, you know, as a business, it's great to have subscriptions because you've got, you know, you've got kind of steadying. Uh-huh. Um, it's something that you can easily kind of measure against over time. You will get to know what your lifetime value of those particular customers are. And some, some of those businesses will be less sticky than, than others. So, so in the case of, for example, a fashion business, maybe that, that consumer is not so sticky. Uh, mm-hmm. And then it really is about kind of the revenues you get on any particular sale or purchase um, that the consumer makes. But when you've got something like Protect Your Pet, well, the lifetime value of that business is actually the lifetime value of that pet. Mm-hmm. They're with you. It's an incredibly sticky business. Once, once you get the consumer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, if they're happy with their service and, and, and actually we're protecting about presumably someone who's had a dog for a long time will actually be, when that goes, may, may actually get a follow-on. Exactly, and, and then quite often in that case of this business, they'll have, you know, some, some families will have, you know, more than, more than one pet, four pets, for example, and that's four subscriptions that stay with you, you know, month on month. So we've seen of time a dramatic change, and you mentioned subscriptions becoming more acceptable. What sort of changes do you see in the digital marketing landscape looking forward? I know that's always a very hard thing to talk about. Yeah, nothing. I mean, I think I think the, the dominance of the big boys is going to be around for a good while to come. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think where, where there are certain changes that have sort of come about recently is the notion of kind of influencers. Uh-huh. So micro influencers. That whole area is still quite new. So let's see how that develops. And no doubt there'll be something else in a few years' time, which if I knew what that was, I wouldn't be talking to you today. <laughs> Fair enough. I'd like to swing topics a little bit here. One of the pleasures from my perspective working with Velocity is that you have a very diverse core team, possibly one of the most diverse in the industry in terms of gender and ethnicity. How well do you think the NDIS industry is doing with diversity? Yeah, it's not particularly good. I mean, I think, and I don't mean this in any way, you know, friendly, but, but yeah, so for example, the, um, the recent forum I attended on EIS is very much white male driven. Uh-huh. But that's a notion of VC generally, actually, in, in the UK. And yes, we are quite different to that. So 50% are from ethnic backgrounds within Velocity and Juice. Uh-huh. A third of us, third of female. That also applies to the companies that we back. 
So we have, for example, out of our 35 businesses, nine of those, or 10 actually, is another one coming up, will be female founder driven. And again, a lot of those companies have got, you know, good, good mix of ethnicities to And it's not just about doing it because it's trendy and mm-hmm. it's cool and all the rest of it. It actually genuinely, we feel, makes sense because commercially, it's the best thing to do. These businesses that have got, you know, diverse representation, particularly with, you know, kind of having female representation, this thing is really positive. And having that balance is just, it's just the right thing to do. So long may that continue. And hopefully, we're trying to get that sort of reputation and, and, and hopefully people that feel that be from different backgrounds are be, you know, the brilliance if they thought, well, actually, you know, going to velocity, you know, you've got a good chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think where you get new founders who are insecure about their things, seeing someone who even superficially looks a little bit like you in some sense can give you that little bit more encouragement. Well, you, you know, for example, one of the companies we're doing, Little Cooks, so mm-hmm. Helen, um, as, as a female founder, I mean, she's just exceptionally good and mm-hmm. her business is thriving. But she, for example, has introduced us to some other colleagues of hers, other co-founders, female co-founders, and all those businesses have been brilliant. Mm-hmm. So Protect My Pet actually was through Helen, for example, and that's a female founder so um, as well. And it's great when people refer us in that way. So, Yeah. That's excellent. We both recognise the EIS industry probably has something of an issue here. What do you think could be done to make it better? Well, let's see how long it stays around for. It may not be around by March anyway. Just for example, I mean, I think the, the notion of as more companies succeed that have different representations, hopefully that will then reflect in the way the EIS industry is constructed. But it's been like this for the whole venture capital world, finance world has been, well, actually finance has moved considerably, I think in terms of kind of more representation from where it was 20, 20 odd years ago. So that's probably fair. I guess I think I think um, ultimately we're down to the successes, hopefully, that these having these diverse makeup achieve. Uh-huh. So I guess pure market forces might hopefully might drive it. I don't think you can have personally sort of quotas and things like that. I think that's the wrong way of approaching things and it tends to lead to resentment and I think it just has to happen fluidly because it's because it's right and it succeed and it, and it's you know commercially successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the quote thing is a challenge. I mean, there, there's examples where it probably has helped in terms of kickstarting the process, but it's clearly not a long term solution. But how you manage that, I have no idea. Yeah. So I'd like to move on now to our standard questions. So I'll throw some things at you and we'll get what your immediate thoughts are. So what was the most recent investment that you made and why did you make it? Well, the most recent one is the cricket ball technology. And we made it because I'm obsessive about cricket because <laughs> I'm Indian. And it's this brilliant business called Sport Core, which has got the Australian cricket board, Cricket Australia, Kind of backing it, and also Kookaburra, which is the the white balls that are used mm-hmm. in the IPL and and fifty overs cricket. Mm-hmm. And what this technology does, which is um, astounding, it's a little microchip inside the cricket ball. It's been tested by the University of Queensland and Brisbane, and multiple tests with Kookaburra to make sure that the microchip doesn't affect the ball, i.e., doesn't you know affect its swing or mm-hmm. spin and etc. So so there's been quite a lot. Of Research done on that, and it's passed those tests. And what this microchip can do 
it can actually assess how fast you're bowling, how much you're spinning, the impact of the ball in real time using 5G and Bluetooth technology. So it's quite awesome. So at the moment, there's a system called Hawkeye, Mm-hmm. Which is being used, you know, by broadcasters and, and by ball tracking, basically. Yeah, yeah. But actually, you know, what if you were to ask the professionals about Hawkeye and you know, for example, accuracy rates of how fast the ball has been bowled, no one believes it. So this system is much more accurate. It's real time, and also it can, you know, it's got kind of three target audiences to it. First off, is broadcasters. Mm-hmm. So clearly, any bit of kit allows them to the, the broadcasters to talk more about the technology or the game itself is always well received, mm-hmm. and we'll be working with some of the existing technologies to do that. So that's your first target segment. The second one are the professional cricket boards. So we've got the IPL engaged, Cricket Australia. We've also talked to the ECB, and then the third one are, are, are kids on the streets, the amateurs, and. The vision of finding, for example, the fastest bowler in England or the fastest bowler in India through this technology, I think it's going to be super interesting mm-hmm. and be a great thing to do. So, yeah, I'm very excited by that business. We're also looking you know, potentially getting a co-investment from Adidas inside Velocity. Not done yet. Yeah, it's a super, super, super thing. So, yeah, that's the last one we've, we've, we've done. As a cricket fan myself, I'm... Always interested to hear about these things. In the classic venture capital triumvirate of market product and management, which one do you rate as the most important? Well, I think you can answer that, surely. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's, clearly the marketing aspect is what we, we focus on most. But, mm-hmm. but, you know, but clearly the management team, it's all about the, the founders as well. So their experience, their motivation, their willingness to take guidance and when required. Uh-huh. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it. There's been so many failures. I talked about some of the founders not having the ability to kind of really leap. And I think that was a mistake that I made in a previous business that I was running uh-huh. and just kind of stayed pretty static. I didn't try and supercharge the business. I should have recruited more staff at the right time. So I think just knowing that inflection point and hopefully I'm not going to do that one again. This time around, you know, we're also scaling quite, quite aggressively mm-hmm. alongside some of the investor companies as well. Excellent. So the EIS industry in which we work is not perfect. What would you change about it? To be honest, the tax relief is through kind of research that, that, that I've seen. I think the tax relief is probably one of the best in the, in the world. Mm-hmm. So clearly, I'd love it if, if the tax relief was increased, so that would attract more investment into the sector. But I think it's a really, it's an incredibly good scheme. And, and in its purest sense, now that it's really about, you know, backing businesses that have genuine risk attached to them, it really is about creating growth and building jobs. So I'm, I think it's a great scheme. And I just hope politically it's not used as a pawn to be seen to be attacking the rich. So I just would hope that the government has the foresight to continue because particularly now, we need jobs to be created. We need to be backing our entrepreneurs. SCIS and EIS is brilliant at doing that. and no, Nowhere in the world is better than that. Where actually we're perhaps not so strong is what we call the equity gap, which is the bit after EIS and then the, the bit before you actually get the bigger VCs on board. There mm-hmm. is a gap of funding. And that's the sort of funding gap that, that we're trying to meet with the, with the private equity, sorry, with the family office fund that we're launching. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, I think that's where the, there is a funding kind of, could be some initiatives where we can help those companies that are sort of pre-Series A, mm-hmm. Series A businesses. That would be very well received, I think, within the UK. Okay, yeah, that's that's something that more than one or two people have mentioned to me. So, yeah, maybe extending, maybe not a full EIS scheme, but a sort of, yeah, a scheme light into that area or something might help. And what do you wish you knew when you start Velocity that you know now? I think that the one thing that I'm really proud about is that just the brilliant team that we've managed to build. And this is such a great passion about every person that's joined Velocity. In fact, my job's pretty much redundant now. I just do things like this with you, Brian. <laughs> I don't need to do anything else. So it's just, just building a fantastic team. That's something I'm really proud about, you know, and, and that's brilliant for, for, for our investors and investee companies. I would hope that, you know, if, if anyone was to ask the investee companies about what their experience with Velocity has been, I would really be hopeful that they have really, you know, some really good positive things to say about us and the fact that we do really care about their businesses and we're passionate about, you know, helping them succeed. Yeah, it's not about tax relief. That's just a side benefit. That's just a nice side benefit of um, helping the UK create jobs and back businesses. Yeah, we were speaking before we started the podcast a little bit about this and how the industry is now where it probably should have been several years ago in terms of it's about businesses and, and generating businesses and rather than the tax break. And I'm really glad the industry has kind of moved on from that. Yeah. So if anyone wants to find out more about what you're doing with Velocity, where should they go? Well, you can go, go to our website, velocity.co.com, uh, and also juice.ventures, which is the debt arm. And on the website, you can see all the companies that we're, we're backing. The IM, the actual information memorandum is, is on the website. And yeah, just take a look at the companies and hopefully some of those might excite you. Excellent. So... Thank you very much for giving the time today, Raj. That's been a a very interesting conversation. Super. Thanks so much, Brian. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.